were trying to walk down the snow area so she wouldn't fall and she she took a fall today on the on the snow it was just like you know falling on snow didn't hurt her and then fell a couple more times trying to help her up so I I kind of made a command decision I said honey you're staying home today so and um so uh, if just because we have church and we don't call it off uh, doesn't mean don't feel like okay you have to you know, you have to come in and stuff like that. And uh, I don't want to see, you know, somebody like uh, Cease coming in on a bad day, trying to ride in on her Harley. And and uh, so so just just be safe. Just let just letting you know, just because we didn't call church off doesn't mean that uh, that you have to come in. The other thing I like to mention, uh, we got our big buddy Alan back here today. And um, and so make sure you give him a hug and. And talk to him about about Cora. Cora's having good days. She's having bad days. But uh, she's at home with her hubby where she wants to be. But believe me, you know, her. it's still a long road. Alan? She has a hard road to climb every day. Yeah. She's learning how to walk. She wobbles as a She she came, you can get the details from Alan, but she came very close to death on numerous occasions. They twice, where they had to use those, uh, the paddles or whatever they call them, the, and the pads. And, um, and um, so it's only by the grace of God that she's still with us. She can't take visitors, though, at this point. So, so just, just pray, pray for them. Every once in a while, give Alan a call, see how he's doing, and uh, see how Cora's doing. But it's just a praise report to see the big guy back, and uh, and uh, they've been through uh, been through a lot. So, but make sure we bear one another's burdens. Stay in touch with each other, guys. Like like Will with the four wheel drive has been you know really helping me out because I don't have four wheel drive, and if I did, I don't know if I'd know what to do with it anyway. So, um, but whatever the case, we got a lot of country boys out here. And uh, they can help out the city boys that we have, and uh, so. Um, but uh, but just make sure, you know, make sure you the conditions are good and you're being safe. If you do come, we're going to try to have the Wednesday night men's Bible study. Uh, call the leaders of each study if you're not sure if they're if it's on or not. And um, a lot of it is not determined by the roads. It's it might be the person who's leading the study. You know how the what the conditions are on their back road and all. Okay, it is. Is it? Oh, you cook. So call Kim. We don't know at this point, and and for, for Thursday night and uh, and um, you know and it, um, yeah, this is a crazy state because it's just like things are looking up for our area and for most of the Puget Sound and, and it's supposed to be some rain and. The snow washing away and the temperatures getting a little higher, but uh, Seabeck I think is still getting hit with. So you know, so uh, so you just don't know how it is. So we just got to communicate well and um, and make sure uh, you know we bear one another's burdens. 
Now, we're going to look at John chapter 1 today. And um, I have a small outline of this on the, over by the donation box on the table, there's the um, order of the nativity events. And on the back side of that, it says the first Christmas. It gives the biological explanation that Jesus was born of a virgin, uh, the historical account from Luke, and the theological explanation. And we're going to focus on the theological explanation. And so it just gives you some of the high points of it right there. But we're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. So as you turn there, we'll go to the Lord uh, in, a, in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just love you, Lord, and I... I uh, thank you that uh, those who are here got here safely, and I pray that those who couldn't make it, that they're home and they're warm, and hopefully they could uh, join with us on streaming audio or streaming video. And uh, uh, But I just thank you, Lord, for keeping us safe. You know, Lord, we've been through some difficult times that many of our loved ones uh, from this church, either expectedly or unexpectedly, went home. Uh, to, to be with your son, the Lord Jesus. And um, so help us to come alongside the families uh, of those who passed on. Help us to come alongside the families of those who are, are suffering right now, whether it's uh, through sickness or unemployment or whatever it may be, Lord. Just help us to be a true Christian family where we bear one another's burdens. And I thank you, Lord, that everybody's been so patient, uh, where we've been trying to... Uh, listen to the weather reports and try to figure out whether we're going to have church or not. But I just thank you, Lord, that we could be here today and, and fellowship and worship you and, um, and uh, just give us your wisdom and any, any more storms this year or the years to come uh, to know how best to take care of our people and to worship you. And Lord, as I preach your word today, I pray it would be your word that is preached. I pray that you cancel the man. Um, uh, all preachers are fallible, uh, but your word is infallible, and it's totally without error. So I pray that you would anoint me with your spirit and empower me to proclaim your truth so that I would not lead anyone astray. I pray you'd open hearts and minds uh, to receive truth from your word and that your spirit would empower us to apply these truths to our lives. And I pray that we would look at uh, the Christmas child, and that we would see uh, the beauty of the incarnation, God the Son becoming a man, and so that we would not just think that Jesus was just one of many great religious leaders. We would see that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, become a man to provide salvation for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 uh, through 18. Again, you know, we've already looked at it at our Christmas service, the historical account, where uh, you have uh, in Luke chapter 2 and the announce, the, 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 the census and Joseph and Mary leaving Nazareth and going to Bethlehem, which is six miles outside of Jerusalem, and the announcement made to the, the shepherds, we even read even further on, a little bit further in the life of Jesus, still as a baby. They're living at a house in um, Bethlehem, and the wise men come. Follow this heavenly occurrence, this star, 
and visit uh, uh, baby Jesus and his family. And so we talked about the historical uh, account of the virgin birth of Christ. But now we want to look at the theological explanation. Don't let the word theology scare you. It comes from two Greek words, theos and logos. The word for God, theos, and the word for word, logos. So all it really means is um, the study of God. So Hindus have their theology. That's false theology. Atheists have their false theology, their false views of God's. But we Christians, as long as we interpret the Bible correctly, we have the true knowledge of God, the true theology. Okay? And, um, and it seems that the Apostle John decided to give the theological explanation of uh, the birth of Christ rather than get into the historical details. Luke gives us the historical details. It seems like he interviewed Mary and got some information that only Mary would know. Matthew, apparently, he, he knew Joseph while he, Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, while he was still alive. He gives Joseph's account, talks about Joseph's dreams and all. But those are the historical accounts. Here, John decides it, it's, it's kind of like, okay, we know the historical accounts of the birth of Christ. What does that mean? And to find out what that means, we have to get into the theological explanation. As we study God in his word and get the biblical doctrines, we see what happened here. And so look at John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3. John says, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word for word is logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Okay? So here we see that, uh, you know, we're going to look down further, verse 14, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he's named, his name is given uh, as you go further on in the text in verse 17, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the one God anointed to rescue Israel. So we're told that Jesus existed uh, as God before he became a man. In fact, in the beginning, he already was there. He's eternal. He has no beginning. John was Jewish. And John knows that the whole Bible starts, in, starts with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the minds of the Jews, when is the beginning? The beginning is what we would call, it's not philosophically precise, but before creation. You know, now, now keep in mind, there was no time until God created changing things. So there really is no before creation. Before is a word that before and after, it deals with time. But how can we finite time-bound humans even discuss something like that without saying, well, before creation? So that's kind of layman talk. But in reality, uh, there was no time until creation 
was created because God is an unchanging God. So in the beginning, so nothing's created. The only thing that existed was God at that point. In the beginning was the Word. Well, the Word's already existing, yet the Word was with God. So the Word is eternal. It was already there in the beginning. No beginning and no end. Yet, the Word was with God. Now, usually when the Bible, especially in the New Testament, just talks about God and doesn't really, isn't specific, it usually refers to God the Father. Um, we know the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Bible teaches that the only, there's only one true God, but this one true God exists throughout all eternity as three equal persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here you get a glimpse of two of the persons of the Trinity in this passage. Now, when you get to John 14, 15, and 16, we see Jesus, the night he was betrayed, talking about himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit as three distinct persons. Okay? By the way, you don't have to have a body to be a person. You have to have, at the very least, an intellect and a will. Okay? And so there are distinctions on the realm of the intellect and the will uh, between the three persons of the Trinity, but in the realm of being, in the realm of nature, in the realm of what God has to have to be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are identical. So they're one in being, only one God, but three distinct persons. Okay, Now that goes beyond human understanding how that could be. But that it is true. How it is true beats me. Only God knows. Okay? That it is true, that's a no-brainer. The biblical text tells us there's only one God, over and over again, there's only one God, only one true, eternal, infinite, creator God. The Father is called God, either implicitly or explicitly. The Son is called God, the Holy Spirit is called God, and then we're told that there are three distinct persons. Three eternal persons that are distinct from each other in the realm of personhood, yet in the realm of being, nature, divine nature, um, they, they are one. Okay? And so there is only one God, but this one God is three persons. Well, so here we see that in the beginning, before, again, using layman terminology, before anything was created, the Word already existed, and the Word was with God, a distinct person from God the Father. Now, the word for with there in the Greek, too, even implies fellowshipping with God the Father. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses, if you pick up one of their Bibles, it should not be called the, um, the New World Translation, it should be called the New World Perversion of God's Word. They just change it whenever they want. So they make it the Word was a God. Okay, I can't get into the Greek here, the predicate nominative rule, the word endings of theos and logos. and you know. But basically, the Greek grammatical rules do not allow you to turn the Word into a God. Okay? It is just not allowable grammatically. John was also a monotheistic Jew. He believed in the existence of only one God. There are no lesser gods. So 
uh, theologically, there's no basis for it either. Okay? And uh, in fact, and I hope I don't confuse anybody, but in the Greek, where it says, and the word was God, in the Greek, it really, the order is different, and God was the word, if you go word by word. Yet, everybody switches it around because we know uh, that the word is the subject and God is the object of this sentence only because of a certain rule in the Greek, okay? And, um, but what I'm getting at is how do the Jehovah's Witnesses know to change the order from, and God was the word, how do they know to change that the order is supposed to be changed and the word was God? What tells them that the word is the subject and God is the object? The only thing that tells you that, the only rule, the predicate nominative rule that tells you that, that same rule tells you thou shalt not put the indefinite article in front of the word God. So the only reason for reversing the order like everybody, every translation does in the Greek also tells you that you're not allowed to make the, the word God there a God, okay? And, um, and so uh, it's saying that in the beginning, before anything was created, the Logos, the word already existed and was with God and had fellowship with God, and the Logos, the word, was God, okay? And, um, and so it's kind of like it's saying, look, the word was with God the Father, but the word had everything that you have to have to be God, the word had. Okay? So it's kind of like saying um, um, Phil Fernandez was with John McCarthy and Phil Fernandez is man. Now we would say a man because we're finite beings. There's many of us. But there's reasons why there can only be one infinite being. You know, you couldn't have two infinite beings. They would limit each other. They would be finite. Um, but it's like saying that the Word was with God. In fact, the Word had the same classification as God the Father in the realm of being. That the Word had everything you have to have to be God. Uh, that's what the Word had. So uh, we see that the Word is eternal, and the word existed with the Father. He was already there in the beginning. And he is equally God with the Father. Now, John doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit yet. Okay? There's, there was a lot of confusion among some of the early leaders of the church. Uh, where does the Holy Spirit fit in? Uh, the last few verses of Acts chapter 18 and the first few verses of John chapter 19, Apollos... He knew of John the Baptist's ministry and baptism. And uh, so did some other believers in Jesus in John chapter 19 that Paul runs into. And it turns out they were baptized by John the Baptist and they had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, but Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, John 14, 15, and 16. Also, when Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus came out of the water, one person mentioned. Uh, Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove, second person mentioned. And a voice from heaven, third person mentioned, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And that's why all Christians for the past 2,000 years 
All Christian denominations, true Christian denominations, teach the doctrine of the Trinity that the, the Bible teaches there's only one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they are three distinct persons. You put that together, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. The one true God exists throughout all eternity as three equal persons. Well, John just talks about the Father and the Son here in this passage. And, um, but other parts of the New Testament talk about all three persons. In fact, there's even uh, some passages in the Old Testament that talk about the three persons. But you really got to look deeply um, into that. Isaiah 48, I believe it's verses 12 to 16, is an example of that. Um, the book of Judges, where it talks about Yahweh, you know, the Lord, and then the spirit of Yahweh, okay, and then the angel or the messenger of Yahweh, who when he visits people, people worship him. The, the messenger of Yahweh there is the pre-incarnate Christ. And, um, but whatever the case, so you have Jesus is eternal, who's in the beginning, existed with the Father, is equally God with the Father, okay, and, um, and then we see that uh, he is the creator. All things, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And that's why we talked about in the Christmas Eve service that when Jesus was 12, and his mom was kind of upset with him, we've been looking for you for three days, you're supposed to leave with our caravan after the, the feast, and you stayed in Jerusalem. And so Mary's trying to chew him out, and age 12, Jesus said, well, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Well, for a Jew to talk about, first century Jew, to talk about God as his father in a special way, he's claiming equality with God. Just look at John 5, 17 and 18. The Jews wanted to stone Jesus, uh, not just because he was disobeying um, their Sabbath restrictions that they had added to God's word, but also because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So even so Jesus, even at age 12, had to remind Mary, you know, Mary, did you know? Yeah, on a good day, she knew. Do you remember what the angel said and this and that? But on a bad day, she'd forget and try to correct him. And he says, hey, Hey, you're my mother, I'm going to submit to you and to my stepdad, but, you know, technically I did create you, you know? So, um, so um, uh, but whatever the case, never forget, when we think about that little babe in a manger, keep in mind, he grew up to be a strong, young Jewish man, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead to conquer death for us, and he appeared to his disciples, he ascended to heaven, someday he's going to return. Right now he's at the Father's right hand, the ultimate position of authority in the universe. Keep in mind, though, before he became a man, you know, he still existed as God, the second person of the Trinity. Keep in mind, Jesus is your Savior. He is the Jewish Messiah. He's your friend. He loves you, but he's also God, the second person of the Trinity, and he is your creator. Okay? We got a lot of, quote-unquote, powerful people today pushing around the church and pushing around people 
and telling us what is best for us, like they really know what's best for us, like they really care about us. And every decision they seem to make, it seems to make life worse for us. And it seems to transfer our funds to, you know, sometimes they even create money out of nothing. And it all lines the pockets of the people in positions of power. And, um, you know, and if there's one message I could give these powerful people that want to rule the world and want to stamp out Christianity, there's one message I like to tell them is that Jesus created you. Stop pushing him around like he's just a carpenter from Nazareth. Yeah, he was a carpenter from Nazareth. But there was more to him than that. Okay? Um, you know, it'd be like saying, well, you know, I, I'm in a bad mood. Let me go push around a 70-year-old. Okay? Well, if the 70-year-old's name is George Foreman, uh, there's more to him than him just being a 70-year-old. Okay? You want to push around Jesus, like, like Josh McDowell said in one of his books, he's more than a carpenter. He's not less than a man. He's fully man, has a full human nature, but he's more than just a man. He's also fully God. And, um, and he is uh, our creator. Now, it's interesting, too, John, and, and by the way, there's good arguments. We'll even see some of them today. There's good arguments that John's gospel may have been written as early as the, the early to mid-50s A.D. Um, one of the reasons, I think it's, I can't remember, it's John chapter 5, he talks about parts of the temple grounds that are still standing. Well, after 70 A.D., they were all wiped out. Also, when you compare the Jewish thought forms of the Dead Sea Scrolls to the 50s A.D., there's almost a direct correspondence to the theological thought forms in John's Gospel. James Charlesworth out of Princeton Theological Seminary showed that. He's an expert both on New Testament studies and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but, um, uh, but John may have written as, as early as that. We're going to see, I would argue, why, why do all four of the Gospels have to keep emphasizing that John the Baptist wasn't the Messiah? That even he said one greater than him was going to come. Even he denied, are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Messiah. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. Okay? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. He had to keep denying that. Why, why do people, why would people in 90 AD still need to be reminded? Now, don't forget, John the Baptist is not the light. Okay? John the Baptist was not the Messiah. Jesus is. John was the forerunner who came and announced that Jesus would come. That's not a reminder you need, okay, in the 90s A.D. It is a reminder you need in the 50s A.D., okay? And, uh, and so there's good evidence that John wrote pretty early. Well, around 50 A.D., uh, Philo was the most famous Jewish philosopher on earth. He was in the new Athens, the new world global headquarters of, of uh, Greek philosophical thought. In, and it had moved from Athens now to Alexandria, Egypt, which had the world's largest library. And Philo was there, this Jewish uh, guy, and he tried to combine 
Platonic thought, the thought of Plato with uh, um, the Old Testament uh, religious teachings, with Old Testament theology. And he got, probably got some things right, got a lot of things wrong, too. Okay, But he had this uh, Logos doctrine. Okay, And I know that early Alexandrian school, guys like Justin Martyr, who converted to Christianity, he brought with him the Logos doctrine. See, the Greeks had this view. They said, look, everything is in a state of flux. Everything is changing. Okay? And something's got to remain the same, but it just, there's being that which is, and there's becoming. This world, and how, how you explain being and becoming was basically determined whether you're going to be a, a philosopher who thought everything has changed, like Heraclitus, or everything is just all one unchanging being, like Parmenides. Well, there was so much emphasis on things changing that for us to have knowledge, the Greeks, in their philosophical system, they never had anything that could guarantee that, we, that what our minds, what our knowledge was telling us actually was true. Okay? We would reason through things and through the world of the senses and sense perception and reason. We'd say, hey, I think there's a rock being thrown at my head. I think I need to move my head. So the Greek philosopher would move his head. And then he was like, well, how do I know that my senses and my reason are really telling me the truth? So they came up with this rather arbitrary doctrine called the Logos doctrine. So what I'm saying is John probably chose this word Logos on purpose. Okay, He's writing in Greek to a culture that speaks common Greek, Koine Greek, and they all pretty much knew what the Logos doctrine was. And so the Greeks arbitrarily said, look, Let's just accept the existence of the Logos, this non-personal mind that makes sense of the world of change and then enlightens our minds so that we can, we can find truth in the world of changing physical things. Okay, So they came up with this Logos. Did they have any evidence for this Logos? It was no, but it, you need something like that to help out Greek philosophy. The Apostle John is saying here, okay, um, look at verses 4 and 5. In him, in the Logos, was life, and the life was the light of men. So he calls the Logos a hymn. So he's saying the Greeks are wrong, the Logos is not a non-personal force. The Logos is God, the second person of the Trinity. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Um, he goes into, you know, further on he's going to talk about the light came into the world, the light which enlightens every man. Okay? I, I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said that, Jesus is like the sun, the S-U-N. So the S-O-N is like the S-U-N. In that we not only see the sun by its own light, 
But through the light of the sun, we see everything else. And it's the same with Jesus. By the light of Christ, we not only see Jesus and all his glory and who he is, but it's through that light that we actually see everything else. I mean, if Jesus is our creator, you couldn't even know that that chair is a chair unless God enlightens your mind. Okay? Paul could say, in him we live and move and have our being. And he's quoting from Greek philosophers who every once in a while accidentally got it right. Okay? But in God we live and move and have our being. In God we know. So it's not just learning spiritual truth. Just the fact that an atheist can learn truth about the physical world in which he lives means God, God exists. Jesus is the light that enlightens his mind. So John is saying, the Greeks are right, the Logos does exist and does enlighten our minds and does make sense of the world of change that he created, but the Greeks are wrong, the Logos is not a a non-personal force. It's not like electricity. The Logos is God, the second person um, of the Trinity. And uh, and so he says in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let me tell you, in the word, in Christ is life. Well, then what does that mean to be outside? What does it mean to be outside of Christ? If inside of Christ, if in Christ is life, what is outside of Christ? It's called death. Okay? You could take the world's most brilliant, unsaved person. Okay? And if you told him, yeah, maybe the occasion would call for it, maybe not. But if you told him, you are a dead man walking. You wouldn't be lying. The living God who gave us life created this world, but it's fallen. And so every day we come in contact with dead men walking and dead women walking. Uh, whoa, whoop de doo they're physically alive. Yeah, but they're spiritually dead. They're on a path to hell. And um, only Jesus can give them true lasting, eternal life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or understand it. Um, You know, light in the scriptures is contrasted with darkness. And so sometimes light is symbolic with spiritual purity. Okay? Okay? Um, and darkness is sin. Uh, sometimes light means uh, spiritual illumination, and I think that's more of the context here, and being enlightened so that you understand something rather than being in the darkness of ignorance. If it was dark outside and we turned off all the lights in here, okay, so there was no light shining at all, and you were walking around, you'd probably walk into a wall, You'd bump into a chair. 
you trip down the steps. Why? Because you're ignorant about your surroundings. When you turn the lights on, then you no longer, then if you're walking into chairs and tripping down steps, you probably had too much to drink at that point. Um, uh, but the problem is ignorance. And I think that's the, 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 the context in which John is dealing with it that Jesus uh, brings to us uh, the light of truth um, into this world of darkness. Just think of, you know, God created this world. We fell into sin. God revealed himself to us in many ways, and we keep twisting that truth. We don't want God's truth. You know, just read John chapter 3, 19 to 21. We don't want to come to the light because then our evil deeds get exposed. We'd rather walk around in darkness. Well, guess what, dark world? The God of light has invaded this fallen dark world. You might think, oh, that's great. I'm going to sit here and watch. God didn't call you to be a spectator. He called you to be a warrior. And so when the Lord God, when God the Son became a man, and the God of light invaded this world of darkness, as we come to Christ, we become sons and daughters of light. And it's our job. You know, is it an old expression that you know, better to light one candle than damn the darkness? And sometimes we got to damn the darkness, but let's, let's at least light one candle. Okay? And, um, uh, but the Lord Jesus brought with us the light, brought to us the light of God's truth, and that light shines in the darkness, and light will conquer the darkness. Okay, um, now look at verses, uh, starting at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now the apostle John, who never mentions himself by name, he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved, the one who rested his head on Jesus' shoulder. Um, but he mentions John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And, you know, again, do you really need to be reminded that John the Baptist is not the light? He's not the Messiah? He's not God incarnate? Do you need to be reminded of that in the 90s AD? No. But in the 50s AD, there's still some people spread throughout the Roman Empire who had been baptized by John the Baptist and heard his teachings and uh, maybe some of them didn't even weren't around long enough for him to hear him look point at Jesus and say, "Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world." Um, so there may have still have been some who thought maybe John the Baptist is the Messiah. By 90 A.D., it was pretty clear that John the Baptist never claimed to be the Messiah. But again, evidence that this was written at an earlier time. And um, uh, But John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. You know, when we start preaching through uh, the book of Philippians in the coming weeks, we're going to see that Paul didn't even get upset if his enemies started preaching the gospel. 
Okay? He, he could care less if you were going to, you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be like if, um, if I got in prison, like Paul was when he wrote the book of Philippians, it shouldn't matter to me whether just my Christian friends were preaching the gospel, but I should be happy even if Christians who didn't like me preached the gospel. And maybe even from the wrong motives. For Paul, some of them were jealous of Paul. Well, now that Paul's in prison, he can't tell me to shut up because I get a lot of non-essential things wrong, so I got more boldness. I'm going to go preach the gospel. Paul said, praise God, as long as the gospel's being preached. Now, keep in mind, Paul's not talking about heretics preaching a false gospel. You've got to oppose that. But basically, um, we need to be children of light like John the Baptist, it wasn't John the Baptist. They came to John the Baptist, Jewish religious leaders. They said, Jesus is baptizing more people than you are. And he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Okay? You're discipling somebody. And they're really maturing the Lord, but then they need to go to someone else for discipleship. And it's drawing them closer to the Lord. You've got to praise God. Because this is not about me. This is not about you. It's not even about the Apostle Paul, and it's not about John the Baptist. It's all about Jesus. The Word become flesh. We're supposed to be shining the light of Christ to bring glory to Christ, not ourselves. So it's all about Jesus. You've got to ask yourself... If somebody described my life right now, and I'm a pastor, and I, I wouldn't even want somebody uh, researching it and trying to figure out. I don't know what the answer would be, and I'm a little scared. But uh, can it be said of us? If somebody thoroughly researched our lives, can it be said, well, yeah, Phil Fernandez, his life was all about Jesus. Paul could say, for, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Are you living for Jesus or are you living for yourself? Okay? I could watch a college football game and say, you know, I'm still living for Jesus. I just need to take a little rest. Even my doctors tell me I need to take a little rest. I enjoy watching football and stuff. I get up from my couch every once in a while, stretch out a little bit, you know, because a bad back could really mess up your ministry. So I could, I could sometimes, I could go to sleep for six, seven hours and say, yeah, I need to be rested to serve Jesus. So I'm living for Jesus when I'm doing that. But when it gets to the second, third, fourth college football game in three days, after a while I've got to say, wait a minute, am I, am I living for Jesus right now? Did I, am I taking a break or am I just kind of resurrecting an idol that was supposed to have been smashed decades ago? Um, but are you sharing the light of Christ? Are you... Shining the light on Jesus, or are you shining the light um, on yourself? And um, so he talked about John the Baptist. Now he gets back to talking about Jesus, verse 9. That was the true light, that's, that's Jesus, the Word, which gives light to every man coming into the world. The Greek structure of this sentence is really difficult. I'm not a Greek scholar. I like the translations, though, that say the true light 
that enlightens every man came into the world or was coming into the world. So I, I think it, it alludes to, because Paul's calling Jesus the Logos, he's pointing out Jesus is the one who turns on the light switch for all human beings to see the truth. Now we're fallen. We can turn the light switch off when we want. Okay? But none of us would know anything if Jesus didn't turn on the light switch. And that's even before uh, God the Son became a man. So the true light, which enlightens every man, uh, came into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Okay? So the world did not recognize its creator. You know, Joseph and Mary show up at an innkeeper's house, and it's like, hey, the creator, God, the second person of the Trinity, has become a man without ceasing to be God, and he's in, you know, Joseph could say, the creator is in my wife's belly right now. Do you have room for her, for, for us in your inn, so she can give birth to the creator who has become a man? Uh, no, no room. I mean, if the world recognized who Jesus was, they'd clear out the whole inn. Okay? Uh, if the world recognized who he was and decided to submit to him, they'd, they'd hand the palace over to him. So, uh, the one who enlightens, who created the world and enlightens human beings came into the world and even though the world was created by him, the world didn't even recognize him. Our creator visited us, his creation, and we didn't even know who he was. And granted, don't... Don't get me wrong, it would have been difficult. Even when Jesus was a grown man, somebody pointed him out and said, hey, there's your creator over there. You know, I'd be like, how could a human that was conceived and born be my creator? Well, the Bible explains all that. Uh, but the world didn't recognize him. God, you know, if the world recognized him today, you wouldn't have all these billionaire politicians and technology and powerful people in the media and in the universities stepping all over God's people. If they would just recognize their creator, they wouldn't be messing with his people. You know, what, what, what if there was a... What if there was a, a lady... And she was getting on your nerves, and you're like, man, this lady gets on, on my nerves, I'm going to chew her out. And then somebody told you, said, yeah, well, uh, just be careful what you say, she's Mike Tyson's sister. <laughs> okay, would you mess with Mike Tyson's sister if you knew that her brother's Mike Tyson? No, you'd give her a pass, okay? Um, the world messes with Christians. Because they don't really know who our king is. 
Don't get angry at them. Love them, pray for them, and pity them. Because only in Jesus um, is life. Uh, but the world didn't recognize him. And then in verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Well, it's like, well, you know, the world is filled with pagans, says John, a first century Jew. The world is filled with pagans. They worship false gods, so obviously they probably weren't going to recognize God when he visited them. Okay? But his own people, who had hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, telling his people, the Jewish people, God's going to become a man, and this is what he's going to be like. He's going to be born of a virgin, be born in Bethlehem. And the list goes on and on, all these prophecies. You would think his own people uh, would recognize him uh, when he came. But no, he came to his own, and even his own people uh, did not receive him. So the world did not recognize his creator. You, you need to be born, you be born in a manger. Go hang out with the animals. But his own people, even the Jews rejected him as their Messiah. Praise God, some of the Jews submitted to him and acknowledged him as the Messiah and the Savior and as God the Son. Because if some of the Jews didn't, none of us would be here. The apostles were Jewish. Even the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, was Jewish. So praise God that the hardening of the hearts of the Jews was partial and temporary. Partial, many of the Jews did believe. Certainly not the majority, and certainly not the Jewish religious leaders. Okay? Um, so it was partial, and then it's temporary. Paul says this in Romans 11. Um, it was temporary. The day will come when the veil will be removed from the Jews' eyes, and all Israel will cry out to, to God for salvation and will acknowledge that Jesus is their Messiah. Um. But until that point, uh, as a general statement, his own people, the Jews, continue to reject him. Um, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to make the Jews jealous. Look at all the mileage we're getting. Not just spiritual mileage. I mean, there's enough spiritual mileage that takes you to heaven. It's not just spiritual mileage, but even the prosperity and the freedoms that we've enjoyed was because we Gentiles have acknowledged the Jewish Messiah um, as our own. We're supposed to make the Jews jealous. You know, I hear brilliant Jewish guys like Dennis Prager speaking so highly of Christianity, and I'm like, if Jesus isn't God and Savior, you're supposed to believe we're idolaters. Okay? Um but the day will come when the veil will be removed. I, I, I think it's going to be the sun's going to be dark and the moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. All, all nations are invading Israel. And the Jews that are left are going to be saying, this is the end of the world. And our Messiah never came. But God's going to be giving dreams and visions to the young men and to the elderly men in the last days when all of a sudden it's going to click. And they say, wait, wait, wait a minute. What if Jesus of Nazareth 
is who he claimed to be. By the way, in our public schools, we don't even talk about Jesus. Our government-run schools, um, if they talk about him, they'll probably claim he never even existed, which is really an anti-intellectual view. Uh, in the schools in Israel today, uh, they teach that Jesus was one of the greatest Jewish prophets who ever lived. So God's starting to work on their hearts, but um, we got to preach Jesus to Jew and Gentile because the world didn't recognize its creator and the Jews didn't recognize their Messiah. Okay, now that's pretty bleak. Well, wait a minute. If the Gentiles didn't accept him and the Jews didn't accept him, that doesn't leave anybody left. Well, John lets us know in verse 12 that some did come to him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You realize you don't have the right to become a child of God. You're a child of God in the sense of creation. Well, you want to celebrate, just keep in mind, all that's done is that's just uh, earned hell for you. You need to be a child of God by the recreation, the rebirth, the regeneration through faith in Christ. And, um, and so many did receive him, and the ones that did, to them they were given the right to become children of God. So a true child of God in the eternal sense is those, whether Jew or Gentile, those who trust in Jesus alone for salvation, those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood. It's not a physical birth. Physical birth isn't going to do it. You're still a child of Adam. You need a spiritual rebirth to be a child of God. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Okay? And so we're born again through the power of God and through God's will. It is God's will that those who trust in his son Jesus for salvation will be saved. It was God's will to send God the Son to become a man and to die on the cross for our sins. And so verse 14, And the word became flesh, God the Son became a man, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, yet we beheld his glory, but even there it was veiled. Even after his resurrection, veiled to a certain degree. If we saw Jesus in all his glory at the Father's right hand right now, we would just melt. Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. By Jesus being called the only begotten Son of the Father, that means that Jesus is the Son of God. In, 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 the, in the sense, he is the Son of God by nature. How many human, humans were the Son of God by nature? One, Jesus. Okay? Now, we can become adopted sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God by nature. Um, so, Muhammad... Um, uh, Gandhi, um, all these false teachers, you can even take true teachers, were not sons of God by nature. Only Jesus is 
the Son of God by nature because he is God the Son. Uh, but he begot, only begotten of the Father, full of grace, grace to save. God, he gives us God's unmerited favor. He forgives us our sins, gives us the eternal life we don't deserve. And he's full of truth to proclaim God's truth to us. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's saying, even though Jesus was born six months after I was born, he existed throughout all eternity. And he's more important than me. He's the creator, and I'm, I'm not. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. I like the translation that read grace upon grace. Saving grace, and then living grace, and sanctifying grace, where God sets us apart more and more for his holy purposes. For the law was given through Moses. The law was a good thing. The law revealed God's holy standards to us, but then if we're honest and we try to obey God's holy standards in our own strength, we cannot obey. We fail to obey God from the heart. So the law reveals God's holy standards and it reveals man's inability to obey those holy standards. So it, the, God's law reveals to man that he is a sinner. He cannot save himself. He needs to look to Yahweh, to God, for the way of salvation. And Jesus is that way. But the law was given through Moses. It's a tutor, a substitute teacher to lead us to Christ, Paul says in Galatians. For the law was given through Moses, so the law cannot save. The law condemns, uh, but the law cannot save. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. See, the fullest manifestation of God's truth given to man is when God the Son became a man. Okay? Um, you know, there's that story, Philip Yancey quotes it in his The Jesus I Never Knew book, the story about a guy who was an agnostic. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but a guy who was an agnostic wouldn't go to the the midnight church service because he didn't believe in God and he stayed home and uh, he had this big glass window and uh, he had the fire burning and it was nice and warm in his home and he was seeing little bird after little bird flying and hitting the window and dropping to the ground. Some of them were unconscious and they'd get revived and then fly away and then um, some, uh, some would just hit the hit the window so hard they'd fall and break their neck and die. And he felt so bad and he went outside and was trying to wave at them to get them from flying into uh, the window to their deaths. I mean, at, at Cross Point where I teach, we have this breezeway that was open for years, for decades. And then on one day they put a glass door up. Uh, within a week we probably lost 20 birds. I remember leaving work one day, I saw three dead birds, and I called the custodian and said, yeah, that's it's not the first, because they used to just fly through the breezeway. And then we put up a glass door, and then boom, 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 boom. And, um, um, and so this, this agnostic, agnostic guy, so the story goes, said, I, I can't communicate to them. They don't understand me. I wish I could become one of them. 
and then I could communicate on their terms and they would understand what I'm saying and then it clicked. He thought Christmas was a fairy tale. That God the Son became one of us. Yes, he came to bring truth. To fully reveal God to us. At the same time, he also came with grace to save. Main reason why he came to save, that he came to earth, was to save us. But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So the law came through Moses. The law is to point us to Jesus. But in Jesus is where you find salvation, grace and truth. And he's called Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the one God anointed to rescue Israel. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So as God the Son, he perfectly reveals God the Father to us. Now I'm going to close with John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus, this is the night he was betrayed. We're going to look at John 14, verses 4 through 9. John 14, verses 4 through 9. Jesus is preparing the apostles for his, his arrest, his death, his resurrection. John 14, starting at verse 4. Jesus says this, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? So he's asking him, what is the way? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way for us to be saved. So Jesus, at first Christmas was not just the birth of some great religious leader among many great religious leaders. It was God the Son becoming a man, the only way uh, for us to be saved. Jesus said this in verse 7, If you have, had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip, another of the apostles, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus is saying, look, I'm the only way to be saved. I am the fullest manifestation of God's truth to mankind because I am God incarnate. I am life. Only in me is salvation and eternal life. And then he could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father, because I, as God the Son, perfectly represent God the Father uh, to mankind. So Jesus perfectly reveals the Father to us. So what is the theological explanation um, of that first Christmas, it's not just some baby born in a manger. Jesus is the creator. He is eternal. He was already there in the beginning. He existed with the Father as a distinct person from the Father, yet he is equally God with the Father and, and with the Holy Spirit. Um, and he is the creator. He created everything that was created, he created. 
And the only uncreated, quote-unquote, things would be the three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The world did not recognize its creator. He was born in a manger. His own people, the Jews, rejected him, even though he was their Messiah. And it had been prophesied for hundreds of years before he came. Yet those who receive Jesus become God's children. Christmas means God the Son became a man, the Word became flesh, and Jesus perfectly reveals the Father to us. And so in closing, don't let the Christmas season pass by without acknowledging that in Jesus is truth and life. In Jesus and Jesus alone is salvation. People want to learn so much about God. You want to learn so much about God? He's not a silent God. He's given us 66 books in the Bible for us to learn about him. But his fullest manifestation was that God the Son became a man. You know, I've actually had people, some who even profess to be Christians, say, gee, I wonder what it would be like if God became a man. Oh, dude, you're... You're showing me you missed the whole meaning of Christmas. You missed the whole gospel message. I wonder what it would be like for God to become a man. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God did become a man. And he did go to the cross. And he did suffer and die on the cross for our sins. And he did rise from the dead to conquer death for us. And whether this world likes it or not, He's coming back. And he'll take his stand upon the earth. And he'll make things right. Jesus is God the Son become a man. He is our creator become a man. He is the way, the only way to be saved. And he perfectly reveals the Father to us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Yeah.